Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Let's pray. (laughs) Great way to end on. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We want to learn everything, Lord, that you have revealed for your purposes in our lives, Lord. We pray, Father, for all those that are new to the Bible, God, that you would give them a supernatural hunger. And even those of us that have known you for a while, we pray that you would give us a supernatural love for your word, that we would desire not just to learn it for head knowledge, um, but to have our lives be measured against it, having you speak to us by your Holy Spirit and make us into the disciples that you've called each of us to be. We pray for your will to be done in our lives this morning. We pray that you would help us to make application of all the verses we're going to look at today and and learn from you directly by your spirit. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been looking at the different Calvary Chapel distinctives, we've looked at a number of different topics. We've looked at calling as everything, that everything front comes from our calling. And he, he, uh, call, he doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. And he takes the foolish things of this world, that's us. Just don't want to break it to you if you didn't know that already. The foolish things of this world to confound the wise. We also looked at it's Jesus' church. He said he would build it. He hasn't called us to build the church. He's called us to build up the church. But it's, he's the one that adds to the church daily those who uh, are being saved. We also looked at the priority of the word of God, that we go through the Bible Genesis to Revelation, we cover every book of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, all scripture, all, 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 all is a key word in that verse, or one of them. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that means that we have to look at every verse, study every verse, have the Holy Spirit apply every verse to us, and, and that's one of our distinctives. Also, we looked at being empowered by the Spirit that the disciples had education, they had ministry experience, but God still told them through his son to wait for the promise on high, the Holy Spirit, that he promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that they would be empowered to be witnesses to him and how important that is for us today. Also, the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that all of the gifts of the Spirit, but they have to be done decently and in order. They have to be done biblically. They have to be done in love. They have to be done with the other person in mind to build up the other person, to focus on the other person instead of our gifts for ourselves. Uh, and that, it's not the main purpose of these gifts is to build up ourselves, although we are blessed when we use God's gifts. Then we looked at grace upon grace and that the environment of the church body needs to be a place of grace where people can make mistakes, where people can fail, where people can be encouraged, where people can be helped and grown grown up and matured in a place where um, they have an opportunity to not be perfect because we're all not perfect. 
and I talked about how we go into hospitals and you don't have emergency nurses or doctors criticize you for being hurt. That would be very discouraging. You go into a hospital to be made well, and you can't be made well if uh, you're being condemned. Last week we looked at, or excuse me, two weeks ago we looked at the supremacy of love, that everything we do has to come out of an a motivation of love, an overflow of the Lord's heart coming through our lives into other people's lives, that we have to love one another, we have to love the lost, we have to love everybody. Also, we looked at, um, last week, we looked at having begun in the Spirit. Very important that we understand that works of God and works of the Holy Spirit start out as a supernatural work where someone's dependent upon the Lord, where someone's going, God, if you don't show up, it's not going to happen. And there's total dependency. But then over time, as God blesses the ministry, we get some ministry experience and we grow and all those things. We can start allowing self-dependence to come in. We can start depending upon the flesh instead of the spirit. We can stop being um, outward and we can start being inward. And then the, to- the clock is ticking at that point related to that ministry dying. Because Jesus isn't going to infuse his life into a ministry that's inward in focus. Because he's not inward in focus. He's outward. Everything about him is to bless others. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so that's his heart. So if you think that Christianity is about you, and that's where there's so many teachings out there. Unfortunately, many churches, Christian television, books, the focus is on man. It's man-centered. But this book is not man-centered. This book is God-centered, and it's, it's focused on us putting our attention on others, and then indirectly, The implication of that is that, yes, we will be blessed, but that's not what we seek after. We seek after loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we seek after loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what God told us to do. Those are the the greatest commandments. And so that's uh, incumbent upon us to to walk in that. This week, we're going to look at the centrality of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ needs to be at the center of everything. Pastor Chuck, who founded the Calvary Chapel movement or who God used to found the the Calvary Chapel movement, always used to talk about keep Jesus at the center of everything. Give him glory for everything that happens. Make sure that people aren't looking at you, but they're looking at God. And, And it was so important to him, he would repeat it so often. Because when God starts using you, you can start erroneously thinking that it's because something that you bring to the table. And, and it's really, it's about a vessel. You being a vessel, me being a vessel. And the vessel never gets the glory for what it um, distributes. It shouldn't anyway. It's about what's in it what, it, what it's containing, not the vessel itself. And so we have to recognize that. And so um, we have to give him the glory for everything, every, anything and everything that's good that comes from him. Jesus talked about that every good and perfect gift is from above. And so we have to recognize that. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures of the beginning of our movement, the Calvary Chapel movement, when you look at these different photos and videos and you can get DVDs about the history and all of that, I just love watching it because it's just, there was no plan. There was no five-year plan, 10-year plan, 15-year plan. There's no master plan that Pastor Chuck had. He stumbled upon something that just happened. It was just a supernatural work of the Spirit. And these hippies that they started reaching out to that got started getting saved by the hundreds and thousands and all of that, um, one of the things that you see very common, and I want to know if any of you have seen these pictures of what I'm about to share. There's a lot of hippies in those pictures and videos doing this. Have you seen that? How many have seen that? 
A lot of you, yeah. What are they doing? No, they're going, they're pointing and they're showing the glory of God. No, no, no peanut gallery here. This is a monologue. This is a one-dimensional, one-directional sermon here. Um, but they pointed to God all the time. They were always giving God glory all the time. Now, Pastor Chuck didn't say, I want all of you young kids that are hippies and all that, whenever something happens that it's obvious that God did it, I want you to point to this. There's no instruction. See, that was an, a natural overflow of the Spirit working because the Spirit always points to God. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself. He points to Jesus. He points to the Lord. We always need to point to him. And so we need to keep Jesus at the center of everything that we're doing. We need to make sure that we give uh, God the glory. Giving glory to God is extremely important as a Christian. And even to non-Christians, as we're going to see, God, as we saw in our opening text that we read, that, that even unbelievers, he will judge them for not giving glory to him. He has an expectation that even unbelievers should recognize because of the evidence that's been given to them by creation, by all these things, that, that he is real and that they should acknowledge him. He doesn't expect them to, to, on their own, apart from the Spirit wooing them, to know Christ. Of course, they have to cooperate with the Spirit and all those things. No one's going to seek God in, in and of themselves. But they need to recognize there's a God and then they need to give him proper glory. And so for Christians, we're supposed to always point to the Lord. Always point to the Lord. And so we have to recognize he's responsible for everything that's good. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, we're told, in Scripture. And you look at the, the fact that God has revealed his, his, the eternal Godhead, who he is, by the things that have been made. We see that he's powerful, that all of this came out of nothing. We see that he's creative and he's a, this great designer by all the obvious design. We don't, in our natural experience, go into situations where there's design and go, oh, that was happened by a natural chance. We don't do that. You don't go into a, your kitchen and, you know, you have a, a bowl of cereal and, and you have alphabet cereal and someone spells out, good morning. You don't go, well, isn't that amazing how just the milk did all that and it just happened by random chance? You don't go to a beach and have it says, Susie loves John written out on the sand and go, man, those waves are amazing. Given enough time, there's just um, all this design that happens. You don't see something written in the clouds by one of those planes, you know, and you go, wow, the clouds are just an amazing formation today. See, see it's, 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 it's called design, and design implies a designer, but we have morality as well. We know what's right and what's wrong. We know what we don't want other people to do to us, we, and that's, tran that's transcendent from all, all cultures. Headhunters aren't putting their heads out to be chop chopped off, their heads chopped off. You know, I mean, we know internally that, that we have a conscience, and that means that God is, is moral. We know that we don't live to the standard that we should, which speaks to the fact that we once lived higher than we do, that there was a fall, and that we're guilty, and that there, we're guilty and God is just, and we want justice for other people all day long. We just don't want it for us because we don't want to be punished for our sin. We don't want to be held accountable for our sin. We'll recognize that we're a sinner, but we just don't want to admit that we need a Savior. And that's the, that's the big <laughs> illogical uh, exercise that our minds can go through before we come to know Christ. Related to God's glory, I believe if we truly had an understanding of just how much God, glory God has, we would better understand how blasphemous it is to take any of that glory for ourselves. 
Just think about how his glory, we just, what does that mean? What, you know, the word glory in Greek means is doxa. It's where we get our word doxology. You know, at the end of a letter or one of the epistles and there's a doxology and there's where the writer just can't help themselves and they're just praising the Lord and they're giving God glory. You know, that's, that's what our lives are supposed to, to, to emulate and to look like. And we're supposed to be a reflection, like a mirror where, where God's glory refre- reflects off of us onto other people and then they see that there's something different about us and we're making sure they understand that it's all God. I want to read to you a passage um, we're going to be turning to other passages, so you don't have to turn to this one. I just want to read to you a passage from Second Chronicles when God filled the temple with his glory. It says in chapter 5, verse 11, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jethun, And their sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one, I love that, they were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and instruments of music, And praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house that the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That's some powerful glory right there. Just want to tell you. The priests couldn't function, they couldn't do their their duties because of the glory of God that was present, that God gave his, by his grace, gave his stamp of approval on that temple by coming down and filling it with his glory. I mean, just you, you, in one sense, you want to see that and experience it. In another sense, you're scared of it, don't want anything to do with it. Like, that's just like amazing to think about that. You know, we're going to need a new body to be able to be in God's presence, because of his glory. And when you read Revelation, you see them standing before the throne and you see all the living creatures and all that. When we went through Revelation verse by verse, we looked at all of that. And it's just hard for us in our, in our humanity and on this side of glory to be able to comprehend what we're looking at and gazing at. And John was the same way. John the Apostle was the same way. It's like some of those things that he saw, he would say, it was like this, it was like that. He couldn't even find a standard of comparison against which to, to measure it. And it's just beautiful how God's glory is, is so beautiful and we have to make sure that we maintain that he gets all of it. He doesn't share his glory with another. So practically speaking, what does that look like? What does it look like if I'm not giving God glory? Anytime we do not direct attention to God when we should, instead of ourselves, we are stealing God's glory. It's that simple. And the interesting thing is that it can be very subtle. It can be very overt and just obvious and, you know, we're doing it aggressively. Or it can be very, very subtle. And I would say that the subtlety of when you do it in a subtle way is actually more dangerous because you, can, it, you don't catch it as easily. Does that make sense? And it's like you're, you don't see it as clearly coming out of yourself when it's subtle. Because we can even deceive our own hearts. We can even not even know our own hearts. 
when it's overt, then it's obvious. We're, we're doing it purposely and all those things. But when it's subtle, it's a little hard to see. It can be overt by taking credit and saying and doing things that point people to us on purpose. It can be subtle by leaving things out, not clarifying certain things. So people initiate giving us credit and we don't correct them. So often the subtle parts of of robbing God of his glory or sharing in his glory is not correcting people who erroneously give us glory. And that's very important to do. Now, when someone gives us a compliment, something that God, we, it doesn't mean that we can't accept a compliment. We can thank them for their encouragement. But we can always point people to the Lord as a result. When people, when you give me compliments or you want to encourage me related to teaching, you know, I praise the Lord. You know, wonderful. That, that's encouragement. Thank you for your encouragement. And then I usually start talking about the Lord. I start talking about how amazing his word is or something because it, it's Honestly, would you come really and listen to anything I had to say if it wasn't the Bible? No, you wouldn't. And I don't blame you. I have no wisdom in myself. I told you before, I'm a, I'm a recovering breakdancer, you know. I don't have anything. I don't have any wisdom apart from the Lord. And, and some of you are like, oh, I'm visiting. That's interesting. Um, but, you know, it's just we've got to make fun of ourselves here. And um, so, again, leaving things out and not correcting people, not bringing clarity Make, allowing people to, to be impressed with us about some, in the context of God using us and allowing people to be impressed when we know that it's him. You know, the thing is, the more God uses us, the more we recognize that it's not us. How many know what I'm talking about here? You, you, it's true. I mean, the more he uses you, the more obvious it's, it's not you. You know, I, I think of Billy Graham. I was able to teach him evangelism. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was able to, um, that was a big joke, trust me. Um, I was able to go to one of his um, um, crusades, and he was in San Francisco. It was an amazing crusade. And, and I was just thinking, and I'd be able to serve at Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusades, all these different ones. And I just think about the human vessel that's getting up there and how simple the gospel is that he would proclaim and, and, and just give an opportunity, and then just thousands of people coming, thousands of people, thousands of people making professions of faith. And you just, it's so obvious to him. And I've seen Billy Graham in interviews just talk about how it's just the Lord, it's just the harvest is ripe. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And the gospel is truly good news. And when people hear it, they recognize how good it is for them. And they need to apprehend or appropriate the truth of it. And they respond because the Holy Spirit's working all the time to convict the world of sin and demonstrate to them as only he can that they're guilty, that they need a savior, and that they're not on their way to heaven apart from Christ. And so he's so good at, at doing that. So I want to look at an example. Let's do it in our text here. I want to look at an example of it kind of being subtle here in verse 20. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So here, Tyre and Sidon is, is in north of Israel, and it's in Phoenicia. And so he's in Caesarea now, which is on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, just south of Tyre and Sidon. So he had that relationship with them, and they were dependent upon that area for their 
food. Okay, so he continues in verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, gave a speech, basically. Verse 22, and the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Now, it was very possible that they weren't even sincere with this because they, you know, recognized that they needed this man, that they had, they were kind of buttering him up probably, and they came with one accord, we're told in the previous verse. They already made friends with this personal assistant and all of that. And so it's very possible that they're saying this to appeal to his pride. And so the, the, what happened to him may not even have been a result of someone um, genuinely believing those things about him. and Because it was very common to believe that there were mortal gods, you know, gods with a small g. It was very common for, for in that time, even today, obviously, but especially then, to, to have this paganism where they're believing in, in deities, especially in ancient Greece and that whole area, very, very prolific. So he's arrayed in this royal apparel. Now, Josephus, who's a, who's a Jewish historian, he records that Herod's royal robes were shining silver. And when they struck, they were struck by the light. See, in Caesarea, it's on the coast. And the, they had this, and you can go there today, and there's an amphitheater that you can walk through. And so you can imagine the sun coming up and then just hitting it just right. And his apparel was, you know, these royal robes were silver and all of that. And it just the light of the sun and all of that and the effect was we're told stunning enough to cause the people watching to proclaim as something more than a mortal being and so the problem was what what should have been the response by Herod what are you talking about the voice of a god and not a man you're crazy I'm not a god god's the only god and you know and deflecting all of that but he didn't do that it was subtle he just let it he just let it rest he didn't say anything. He wasn't promoting himself as a god. He wasn't actively, overtly saying, I'm a god. But he let the, the false accusation, and it wasn't an accusation, but a false statement, remain. And that's what we can do as believers. We remain letting something that's not true, related to giving us credit for something we shouldn't take credit for, and we let it, we let it remain there. And then we're told what happened in verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Man, now this is the New Testament. You think we see the angel of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. It says the angel of the Lord. But there's also an angel of the Lord we see in uh, the Old Testament as well. And here it is, an angel of the Lord struck him. And we talk about angels being you know, a blessing and helping people and all that. They're bad to the bone. I don't want to mess with an angel. Are you crazy? An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Now, he's an unbeliever. God struck an unbeliever because an unbeliever did not give God the right glory and in a subtle way. He didn't even proclaim it, but allowed it that wrong conclusion to remain out there. That's unbelievable. That's just how much God doesn't want to share his glory with anybody. God judged him, and it was right and appropriate judgment. And I know you agree with me. I want to kind of look at, as we leave this and go to other texts, I want to kind of look at ways that we can understand or things that we need to understand related to um, 
the importance of not robbing God of his glory. And the first thing I want us to look at is that God has little tolerance for people who rob him of glory. That's the first thing I want us to look at. Turn over to, in the Old Testament, turn over to Daniel chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, don't feel any uh, guilt about looking in, in the table of contents if you need to to find where Daniel is. Um, it's uh, in the Old Testament there. If you haven't studied the book of Daniel, I highly recommend it. There's so much there in the book of, of Daniel. Daniel and Isaac are one of the few biblical characters that there's nothing negative said about them in Scripture. Or there's no thing that we see that was a major character flaw. Um, Daniel's one of them. Daniel chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 29. Daniel 4, uh, 29. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking of this Nebuchadnezzar. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of, of my majesty? And that was the problem right there. That was, the, that was more overt. That was him saying, I don't know uh, in front of whom he spoke that, but uh, he spoke it nonetheless. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. In other words, he gave him glory. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor, the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to. To put down. And that's the key there, whoever walks in pride, because you don't take glory without being prideful. You don't want people to see you and have you be the center of attention related to uh, what God is doing unless you're prideful. Because humble people don't see themselves as those that should receive glory and honor, it's only prideful. People Think about Satan. Think about Lucifer. The first sin that ever was committed was committed by Lucifer, who was in heaven as one of God's angels, beautiful angels, that had pride in his heart. He was found with pride in his heart. 
and he had pride and he wanted to usurp the Lord's glory and, and God judged him as a result of that. So not just Nebuchadnezzar. And here again is another person that God says, no, you could, and I don't even know, he could have said it and just by himself or, or not many people heard him, but God still did not tolerate that and humbled him and judged him until he had a change of, of heart. And he was, got, I'm sure he got tired of grazing. You know, grazing will do that. You know, all of a sudden you find yourself grazing in the field um, and you realize maybe I've done something wrong. That's like your first inclination when you're a beast out in the field grazing. (laughs) Um, So that's important for us to see. Now, another example is Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Sometimes, again, we say, oh, the New Testament, God doesn't, you know, deal with people in that way. Uh, Well, again, Herod was, but also Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of land and they made it appear that they had sold everything and gave all of their money to the work of the Lord. They didn't, and they, but they made it look like it. It was complete hypocrisy that they were engaged in there, and they were wanting to look good. They were wanting everybody to look at them and look at them and say, hey, how great, how, I was Ananias and Fire, man. They gave all their money, and they had the freedom to hold back part of that money. No one told them to give all their money. But the fact that they, they didn't give all their money but made it look like they gave all their money was the hypocrisy. And, and why did they do that? Most likely they did it because they wanted, they wanted glory. They wanted to be looked at as spiritual. And we have to be careful. Again, when we don't have a gracious environment, we don't have a biblical environment, it creates actors or it tempts us to become actors. And that's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor, someone that puts on a show that makes it look like we're something that we're not. God hasn't called us to be that way. He's called us to be transparent and humble and be, you know, ready to admit where we fall short, that we need help. But if we don't have an environment that's gracious, that helps people when they are admitting their need, then they're never going to be here and they're never going to be here long enough to grow. So Ananias and Sapphira, another perfect example of taking and taking credit for something that was, was not the case and, and robbing God of, of God's glory. So not only does God have little tolerance for people stealing his glory, but number two, everything we have, we have received. And I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Back in the New Testament. You know, I could put the verses on the screen. I know how to do that. It's purposeful that I don't do that. I want you to get to know your Bible. I want you to get familiar with the scriptures, the order of the books. I want you to learn all of that. It's not like we haven't figured out how to put words on up there. We know how to do it. This is purposeful. We need to know your Bible. Very important. First Corinthians chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 1. Let a man so consider us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So look what Paul says. He says, consider us servants of Christ. So we're, we were willing slaves. That's what it means, a willing slave. And servants, or stewards rather, of the mysteries of God. We're, steward means a manager. They're, we're managing, we're overseeing uh, the mysteries of God. And the word mystery is something that used to be hidden But because we have the Holy Spirit, 
We have the ability to discern it and to understand it spiritually. And it's something that was hidden that was now it's made, been made uh, known. That's what the, the Greek word means there in, in that word mystery. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that, that one be found faithful. So God's called us, if we are going to be managing the things of the Lord, if we are going to be, and we're all stewards in, you know, of, of the Lord's resources, of his time, of his influence, all these things, we're good stewards. He's called us to be faithful. I think it's healthy just to remind ourselves God's called us to be faithful. Whatever he's called us to, we need to be faithful. Sometimes we look at volunteers in the church and we can think sometimes, well, they're volunteers because, you know, I mean, and we can't expect very much of them because they're, no, 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 no. We can expect a lot of them. We can expect a lot, God expects a lot of ourselves to be faithful, to be consistent. Are we going to treat a job and be more faithful to a job than we are the things that pertain to eternity? We need to be very faithful and very consistent. Verse 3, but with me it is a, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. See, the church in Corinth were, were not receiving what Paul had to say uh, like they should have. And he goes this whole long thing about defending his apostleship. Verse 4, For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So it's important for us to see that these, these things of our hearts, these things that we want, we want people to, to look at us, our natural leaning as, as humans, is we want attention and we want people to look at us and how great we, we are. And he's saying the praise that you should be wanting is the Lord's praise, the Lord's reward, his acknowledgement of your faithfulness because you've been a faithful steward, because you've been a servant of Christ. And so each one's praise will come from God. Don't seek praise from others. Don't seek glory from other people. Seek uh, praise from from God. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. So he says, look at our example. I've transferred all these things. I've compared us to these things. And all these things you need to learn and see as an, uh, in us as an example of those that do not think beyond what we should think about ourselves, beyond what Scripture says about us. And so you've seen that, that, that none of you, notice this, the cause of this, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another against each other. See, when we're puffed up in pride and we're comparing ourselves among ourselves, like we're not supposed to do, what happens is, we end up having strife with other people because we're in a competition. You know, you remember that the disciples were always arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is going to leave the work of, of the Lord with these guys, these 11 guys, and then with Matthias 12, that he would leave the whole thing of this church starting with 12 guys that were not professionally trained, that were fishermen, who were fighting about who's the greatest. Doesn't that make you feel comforted? <laughs> like this is who we leave or this is who we're leaving this to we're leaving it to these guys right but what happens is once they're baptized with the holy spirit and once god begins to get a hold of their hearts and they start to depend upon god and not themselves and start to see um, what it means to serve others and all these things then god begins to use them and then they're very careful to give glory 
to God and they're not puffed up. And so that's what God's called us to be, is to not puff up comparing ourselves among ourselves, but focusing on making God look good. I remember the first time I was asked to teach um, at a large church. I'd never taught in a, in a big venue before, and I was, I was very nervous, very, very nervous. And I was thinking I was going to pass out, seriously, when I was waiting to come up to teach. And I was begging God, please, God, don't allow me to pass out. That would be so embarrassing, walking up the steps and just boom. And then everyone's like smelling salts and, you know, and defibrillators or whatever needs to happen to get me to be back conscious again, you know. And I'm just begging, I'm seriously, I'm not kidding you. I was, God, please don't let me pass out. And then he spoke to my heart and he said, if you would be as concerned about how I look as you are with how you look, you wouldn't be nervous. I'm like, whoa. That was convicting. And it really helped me, though. I'm like, you know what? I, don't, I just want to have Jesus look good. And I don't care what I look like. I'm going to look, have Jesus look great. And all the nervousness went away. And it was still, a, I still bombed. But no, I'm just kidding. I didn't bomb. But it was, it, God was gracious. Um, so then he says in verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive, indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's a perfect point. Anything that we could point to as, I'm so great and look at me and I'm drawing people to me and all those things. Anything that we can look at or point to is something that we didn't originate with us. With us. That it came from God. He gave us Whatever it is we want to look to, our personality, our looks, our speaking ability, our um, whatever gifts we have, the word of God, the Holy Spirit convicting people. Uh, I mean, whatever you could ever point to and how God works, those, all those things come from God. One time as a new Christian, I was acknowledging all of that in my prayer time. And the Lord, and I, but I was saying, you know, at least I have a will. You know, you, you have all those things, God, and you give me all those things and everything. But it, at least I've, I have a will. And then he said, and who gave you your will? You. That's right. It's true. He gave us our will. He, there's nothing that we have that we haven't received. And Paul asked the question, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why are you acting as if these things originate in you? Why are you acting like those things came from you and didn't come from someone else when they did? And that helps us remember I need to give God glory because everything that he is doing in my life, I've received from him. There's nothing that I have that I haven't received. So not only does God have little tolerance for people stealing his glory, and not only does everything we have is something that we've received, but thirdly, when we seek the praise of men, it greatly affects others. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, fourth gospel in the New Testament. I want to begin reading in verse 37. John chapter 12, verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So, I mean, I want to keep reading, but just to understand that, this, it's, he's, this is, your heart determines whether or not God is going to, how he's going to uh, interact with you related to truth. If your heart's open to truth, you're going to understand things. He told the disciples that basically these parables I've spoken plainly to you and all these things, and, and, and because they were open to truth, it, then they could see things. But if you're closed off to truth and you don't want to believe and you have a rejecting heart, you're not going to understand these things. And it's a sign of judgment. But it originates in your own heart because God gives every man an equal opportunity to receive. So it just, it's, it, parables have a, have a dual work. They make things clear for people who are open to truth and then they conceal things in many ways that when you, if you have the wrong kind of heart. And then he continues and he says in verse 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Talking about Jesus. Isaiah saw the, 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 I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's seeing Jesus there. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 22 or 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, that is Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Very telling, isn't it? These were the leaders, the rulers of Israel. They were supposed to be leading and influencing the people for good. And there is no greater good for Jews that received their Messiah. But they loved the praise of men, namely the Pharisees, and they were fearful that they would be put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue is more than just losing your place of worship. Being put out of the synagogue was losing your livelihood. Because when you were in the synagogue, that was the place where all the connections were made. Everybody took care of each other. Everybody gave each other work in, in, in the trades and in the farming communities and all these things. You were put out of the synagogue. You were ostracized from your whole community. And you lost everything. And these rulers were afraid of the influence of the Pharisees. And, and, and they did not receive Christ. They did not confess him, we're told. And that influenced a lot of people to not receive Christ because the rulers of Israel wouldn't confess him because they, they, were, they wanted the praise of men. That's what they were most concerned about. And that can be the same for us. We can seek the praise of men and we could want glory for ourselves and we can reject the things that God has told us to do. We can reject the things that we're supposed to say, the gospel, speaking the truth to people, standing up for salt and be salt and light, to be able to stand up for the things that relate to holiness and our culture and all these things. And, and sometimes we would rather have people in the world think highly of us than giving God the glory by obeying him and saying the things that he's called us to say. You know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You can't be a man-pleaser because the, the fear of man is a snare, we're told in Proverbs. You can't be a man-pleaser and trying to please men and at the same time be a servant of Christ because this world's going the wrong direction. And its opinions are going the wrong direction because it's, they're not according to Scripture. And so God's called us to think about how our walk and, and how we give, take credit for things and how we give God glory in our obedience to God and all those things, how it affects others. Listen. How you obey the word of God, how I obey the word of God, 
it affects other, others. People are coming to conclusions about our God based on our lives. Now, it, the responsibility is still between them and the Lord, but we're, we're called to be good influences in their lives. We're called to point them to God and show them the abundant life that comes from living a life of being a disciple and being an obedient disciple of his. So it's important for us to see that. We have to recognize that when we're in willful disobedience, maybe some of you are here and you're right now, know you know your willful disobedience. God wants you to repent. He wants you to turn back to him. He'll forgive you. He just wants you to confess that and repent and turn back to him. As it's been said, 10,000 steps away, but one step back. And he wants to do that in, in our lives when we get off track. But he's going to hold us accountable for our influence in other people's lives because when we live for ourselves, we don't live for him, we're robbing him of glory because he's called us to live a life that's separated unto, unto him. It affects others. Did you know that the source of the people who began to, to build the Tower of Babel, the source of them doing that is that they would make a name for themselves? It's true. I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 11. And we're almost done here. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass that they journeyed from the east, that they, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That was their motivation for building the Tower of Babel. We use the word Babel. Hey, he's babbling. All of that makes, it means that it's not making any sense because that's what God did with their language. They had one language and he confounded their languages. And that's why we have all the different languages in the world today. Because he, we all started with one language. But yet God, because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to rob God glory. They wanted people to look at them. He confounded their languages and scattered them all over the earth. It's very important for us to see the importance of not trying to make a name for ourselves. The name, we, and it's so funny, we sang that today. Your name. Strong and mighty tower. Again, another example of uncoordinated being on the same page with the spirit because no one knew what I was going to teach on but we sang about his name and how great his name is and his character and who that means that you're wanting his name to be lifted up and magnified and and everybody know who he is it's not just his name like John Smith name it's you're you know when someone says that man has a good name that's what it's getting at he has good character he has a good reputation he's, that's what it's talking about having God be magnified and lifted up and 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 venerated and, and everybody look at how great he is our whole lives are supposed to represent making him look good but that only happens when we obey him that only happens when we say the things that are pleasing to him it happens when we love people unconditionally when we get our focus off ourselves and onto others only then will people see that we're different and we're only different because of the difference he's made in our lives and he is who he is. And then we bring him glory. That's what he wants for each one of us. I want to close by reading two scriptures from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And then verse 11 in chapter 48. For my own sake, for my own sake, sake I will do it 
For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. May we keep Jesus at the center. May we keep him at the center at everything that we do, being careful to give him glory by our actions in obeying him, by our words, by preaching the gospel, by telling people the truth, by telling people Jesus is responsible for my life and what he's done. You know, people give glory to God when they don't have a different kind of life. (laughs) It's like, it's all over sports. Now, I'm not saying everyone that does that in sports, and I want to first give glory to Jesus, my Lord. Like, I don't want to say all those people aren't believers or they don't have different kinds of lives as a result of the relationship with the Lord, but many of them don't. And, and they just do it as like a religious good luck thing or whatever. But they're giving glory to Jesus when they don't have a life that's as a result of him working in their lives. So we should really give God glory. Be quick to give him glory. Give him credit. Have him be seen and have him lifted up and have him magnified. Also by our love. Being bold with our love. Being bold with our love and our expression of love to other people. And also our worship. Having Jesus be the center. There's a lot of songs we don't sing on purpose. Because they're man-centered. They're all about us. They're barely even taught. I've been to church service. I went and visited a church about a year and a half ago. And I'm telling you, I was trying to find lyrics that were talking to God. It was just all basically singing about us. And like, who are you singing to? <laughs> it was like, who are you? Are you singing to yourself? I mean, it's like they have to be truthful. It has to be God-centered lyrics. It has to be, and I'm not saying you can't have lyrics that talk about my experience with God and all that. The Psalms do that. It's fine. There's a point. But if the whole entire thing, the whole thing is directed about me, it's, look how sick we are. I mean, let's just be real for a second. We can make worship songs about us. We can make worship self-centered. That's the epitome of insanity, to think that I can make a worship song about me. And the whole point of it is to, to worship God. We don't want to rob him of his glory. He doesn't share it. And he will deal with us if we try to take some of that glory. He will. There's many different ways he can do that. He doesn't want to do that for us or to us. He doesn't want to discipline us for giving um, ourselves the glory for things. And he has all the grace and the power to help us deflect attention off of us and onto him where it belongs. Amen? Let's, let's, let's pray.